Okay, let's just bow our hearts one more time as we come before God's word together. Father, we do just ask that you open our ears. Lord, not just to hear audibly, but Lord, to hear spiritually. Now, Lord, open our eyes, not that we would just see with the natural, but see spiritual things, Lord, that can't be discerned, Lord, by the natural mind. Father, help us to understand this morning what you have in these words, in your word, for us, to challenge us, to edify, equip us, Lord, to cause us to grow, to cause us, Lord, to fall more in love with you, we pray. We just give you this time. Speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're carrying on in our study of uh, the Gospel of Mark. We've said already as we've been going through this that Mark is just seems to be this really enthusiastic individual that just wants to tell you about Jesus. Uh, you know, everything he says is just a very quick uh, one thing to the next thing to the next thing. There's a few things in, in the study this morning, depending on how far we get, um, where he kind of just spends a little bit longer on certain issues and gives us bits of information that some of the other gospel writers don't give. But generally speaking, he just seems to be just so overwhelmed with the person of Jesus. And as we've said already, uh, seemingly Mark got the information from Peter. And you can imagine again Mark sitting at Peter's feet as Peter's recounting these first-hand experiences that Peter had had. And Mark's saying to Peter, then what happened? And just, just scribbling the notes down. And, yeah, but then what did, what did they say? And you just get that excitement. This week I had a phone call uh, on Monday evening to say that a friend of mine back in Deal, a pastor, um, had gone home to be with the Lord. Um, this was a chap, uh, man's name was Lionel. He was a physiotherapist uh, by day, his occupation. Um, but he pastored just a small fellowship. He was a wonderful, wonderful man. And uh, before we, Joy and I and the family moved down here, um, most weeks we would get together and we would just sit and we'd spend time studying scripture and just chatting. And he was blind. Um, so I would typically read uh, he had a various apps on his computer and things that, you know, he could listen to scripture himself. Um, but we would just read through, I'd read scripture and we'd just share ideas or we'd read through uh, devotional books and, and so on uh, and we'd just share. He was just an incredible man. Um, I, I rang one day to speak to him and Christine, his wife, said to me, uh, oh, he's outside at the moment. I said, oh, okay. He said, well, I say I was outside. He said, he's actually up on the roof putting a tile back. Bear in mind, he's blind, couldn't see a thing. Um, and this was the kind of thing he did. He, he just didn't seem to have any fear and um, just an incredible character. Um, but one of the things I was talking, just uh, lazy with his family this week, one of the things that Lionel did was make me want to love Jesus more. And Mark is one of those kind of individuals that just has this overflowing exuberance, love, passion for Jesus. And what a a privilege it is when we get to meet those kind of people that cause us to want to know more of Jesus. You know, and I'm, I'm blessed because this morning Ron's with us, and Ron is one of those individuals to me that through my life has been a great example of somebody to, well, Hebrew speaks of those whose faith we should follow. You know, and it's good for us to have people that we can look to you know, of course, we want to be like Jesus. But sometimes that's a, that's a bar that feels a little bit too high. So it's kind of nice to follow 
fallible, fallen humans and see sometimes the struggles they go through, but their determination, the fact they don't give up. And again, Mark, one of those individuals, we already talked a little bit about some of the things we know about his background. He went on that missionary journey with Paul and didn't continue. don't know why we're not given the specifics, but it may well have been that he just found it too tough. But here now, he writes this account. And, and later on, Paul will speak about Mark as being useful to him in the ministry. I personally think that it's because that by the time Paul makes that statement, the gospel of Mark is written. And it's already starting to spread abroad. And, and of course, there's a very Gentile flavor to this gospel. A lot of the, the Jewishness is explained in detail for those that wouldn't have understood. I, I just think that maybe that this was written then and Paul... Say, Mark, come along. Bring, bring those manuscripts you've written. They're great. We can share them with other people. He says, Mark's useful to me. Well, we ended last time by seeing the healing uh, on the Sabbath day. Uh, and, of course, this brings all sorts of controversy, certainly in, in this time for Jesus. Um, we find in Scripture there's a number of healings on the, on the Sabbath. I'm not going to go through all of them. I'll just leave them in the list. They'll be in the notes. You can have a look at them. Um, not all healings, of course, were on the Sabbath, but a number of them were. And we'll see Jesus get very angry. Yes, that word is rightly used, and we'll see in a moment, uh, with the Pharisees. Because of their insistence on the legalism, on the law, on doing things the way they think should be things to be done, and totally missing the point. You see, no one is saved by the days they either do or don't observe. That's made very clear in the New Testament. We don't need to labor that here. I think we're all understanding that. You know, salvation is, of course, only through the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is really a time of devotion. It's not to be subjected to rules. But again, as Scripture makes clear, it's a, it's a benefit. You know, and really the whole idea of the Sabbath is entering into that place of rest in Jesus Christ. Coming to that place where we cease our toil and we can rest in Jesus. And the Pharisees, they, they don't understand it. Well, let's we'll jump into the text because we read Mark chapter 3 verse 1. And he, Jesus, entered again, this is another Sabbath day, into the synagogue. There seems to be at Capernaum still. And we're told, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. This is what we're, we're told to start with. Now, Adam Clark makes this comment. He says, the man's hand was withered, but God's mercy had still preserved to use him. Sorry, use him, the use of his feet. He uses them to bring him to the public worship of God. And Jesus meets and heals him there. It's interesting to note that this individual doesn't seem to have gone to the synagogue to be healed by Jesus. Seemingly, he kind of accepted his situation. Now, one of the things that we get um, from the, the, the Greek, from what the other gospel writers indicate, is that this is something, this, this withered hand wasn't something that had been there since birth. He'd been subject to some sort of accident uh, and so on. We'll talk more on that in just a moment. But you know, very quickly, we allow things that we haven't got to prevent us from worshipping God. 
rather than worshipping him with what we have. And this individual could have easily blamed God for this predicament that he found himself in. Jerome in the third century um, comments that this individual was a stonemason. Now, we don't have no biblical basis for that, but maybe he was referring to other information he had access to. And maybe since in the course of his work, somehow he crushed his hand and it led to this situation. You know, it's easy to blame God. And, and we've heard this morning how people in the world will blame God for tragedies and problems rather than using those things to go to God. You know, we, we mustn't use those failures or those challenges as reasons not to worship God, to blame him, but rather be grateful for everything that we have got. And this individual going to the synagogue seemingly regularly. And the other interesting thing here is, of course, that the Pharisees typically would have, as we see in other examples, have assumed that his condition, his disability, was as a result of sin. That was very much the mindset. If there was something wrong, sickness or whatever else, then it was the result of sin. That means that this individual was probably, to some degree, ridiculed by Certainly some of the leadership. Now bear in mind, again, we've already mentioned that the, the Pharisees particularly that seem to be here are the ones that have come down from Jerusalem. Remember that we've seen already the leper was healed. That According to the law, the leper would have had to go up to Jerusalem to offer the sacrifices given by the law. That would have caused a real stir because they'd never done that. There'd never been a leper healed in Israel. And no doubt they then send a little delegation down to Capernaum to find out what's going on who this individual is called Jesus doing these things. You know, and these inspectors, these Pharisees come down and look at this man with a withered hand, no doubt, assuming it's a result of sin. And, you know, the challenges he's gone through just to be in this position, but as I say, he doesn't seem to cry out himself for uh, Jesus to heal him. He just seems to be accepting of this position he's in. I just want to read this comment from Oswald Chambers here. He says, we're in danger of forgetting that we cannot do what God does and that God will not do what we can do. We cannot save or sanctify ourselves. God does that. But God will not give us good habits or character and he will not force us to walk correctly before him. We have to do all that ourselves. We must work out our own salvation, which God has worked in. Uh, And I just think this individual is is an example of somebody who is making a step. He's putting himself in a position And now we're going to see God blessing him. You know, that's what we need to do. We need to make sure we're always putting ourselves in a position where God can bless us. Never use these things as excuses not to fellowship, not to meet together. You know, over the years I've seen so many people pray for certain blessings in their life. Maybe a promotion at work, maybe uh, children or whatever. And suddenly those things become a reason for them not to come to church. They become a reason for them not to fellowship. Or I can't come to We need to spend time with the family. Or well, my job's really busy now. I, I can't make it on a Sunday. It's so sad. You know, suddenly people fall out of fellowship altogether and then they start questioning why God doesn't bless them. Well, we need to keep ourselves in that place. So we're told then, and they, this is speaking of the Pharisees, watched him. They're watching Jesus. Whether he would heal him, heal the man with the, the withered hand, on the Sabbath day. That's the, their real issue. That they might accuse him. A lot in that sentence. Again, these are the religious professionals. 
We've said already that no doubt following this cleansing of the leper, they'd made their way down to Capernaum. You know, Jesus had added to their consternation by presuming to forgive sins. We saw that in the last chapter. And they make this statement, who does this man think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And of course, they're right, only God can forgive sins. They totally missed the fact that right in their midst was God in the flesh. And now, of course, they're just looking for a reason to accuse him. Interesting, isn't it, how so often people hold on to their, their kind of doctrinal position. And anybody that doesn't sit exactly where they sit must be wrong. They don't look at what God is doing. They don't look at the way that God is working through other people. It's just simply, they must be wrong. Now, of course, we must be discerning. But at the same time, we mustn't hold so tightly to our own position. You know, again, one of the things Oswald Chambers says is that we shouldn't be looking to make converts to our own point of view. But converts to Christ. So this man in the synagogue on this Sabbath day, seemingly just part of the, the events that are going on, Jesus was there teaching as well. And what we understand, I think it's Luke that, that tells us that. So Jesus is there teaching on, the, on this Sabbath day. And this man, not stepping forward, not coming to Jesus, asking for healing, but just there. And Jesus, perceiving again their thoughts, knowing what these Pharisees are thinking, says unto the man, which had the withered hand, stand forth. Basically, hey, you, over there, just come here, come here. Just feeling probably a little bit awkward and standing kind of right in the middle of everyone. And then Jesus turns to these Pharisees and says to them, hey, you tell me this, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil? To save life or to kill? <laughs> See, they were about to try and put Jesus on the spot. They were looking to expose Jesus. Instead, Jesus now exposes them. You know, people speak often about the evils of religion, and they're right. Of course, religion is very dangerous. Religion is, I think the, uh, I think the Latin is uh, relangari, it's to relink. That, that's the idea. It's trying to make this connection again with God. By our effort, it doesn't work. The only way to relink with God is through the cross, through Jesus. Religion will never solve the problem, and their religion didn't have the answers. So Jesus asked them this question. And it's interesting because, uh, this, this is a comment from David Guzik, he just said, he asked them two questions that immediately revealed the folly of their tradition. He says, is it lawful to do good or evil on the Sabbath? Of course, it's never lawful to do evil. It's always lawful to do good. And the second one, is it lawful to save life or destroy it? Well, once again, it's never lawful to destroy life. Always lawful to save. Put them in a real predicament. There's no way they could answer this without exposing their own preconceived ideas. Verse 5, and when he had looked round about on them, gazing at them, one was looking at them, kind of waiting for an answer almost. And notice what we read with anger. Is Jesus. It's interesting. It's not one of those things you would expect to read 
is really said of Jesus. But anger in itself is not sinful. Anger is actually an appropriate response. It often demonstrates genuine love. If somebody was to try and hurt one of my daughters, I'd be angry. If I wasn't angry, there'd be something wrong. So anger in itself is not wrong. It's sometimes how things are applied that can be a problem. But Jesus here, we're told, looked on them with anger. Being grieved. It's the only time we're told this of Jesus. But it just it conveys, even in the English, we don't need to dig any deeper to realize that there's just that disappointment, a frustration. Just that unreasonableness of the position they're holding. Yeah, there isn't anything more infuriating than injustice or unreasonableness. Recently I've been teaching through the semester, this semester, the Cowboy Chapel School of Ministry on a devoted, the devoted life of a servant. And one of the things that we looked at was this idea of People who are reasonable, who can affect our own devotion to the Lord. We read in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for all men have not faith. Paul says to the Thessalonian believers, look, pray for me. Pray that I will be delivered from unreasonable people. Why? Unreasonable people take up, take up a huge amount of our resource and time. And, and even in our own minds, we try and battle sometimes, trying to find a, a, an answer for their unreasonableness. Unreasonable people, we were saying in the course a couple of weeks ago, you know, will often be people that you know. Yeah, they may be within the church, it may be without the church, outside the church. But frequently, they will subtly discredit your ministry, questioning your right, your authority, or your calling. This is what the Pharisees were trying to do here. You know, and the accusations, things they say, will have to be baseless. Again, unreasonable. It's so hard to deal with those kind of situations and those kind of people because there isn't an appropriate response. Often they will draw people after them. And there's a real danger to our own devotional life when we encounter people like this because they will take an inordinate amount of time and energy and they can pull us away from really focusing on the Lord and thinking on the ministry that we've been called to and in this situation Jesus angry and grieved because their position is just so unreasonable they're not thinking about this individual they're not thinking about the opportunity for this man to be healed incredible miracle to take place in in front of them effectively it's unreasonable verse 5 says and when he had looked round about on them with anger being grieved for the hardness of their hearts he saith unto the man turns his gaze from these Pharisees and looks now to this man with the withered hand and says stretch forth thine hand and, and suddenly, in an instant, everything that had been damaged with his hand, we're told, Luke tells us, by the way, that it's his right hand. It's typical of, of Dr. Luke. You like it when doctors get those things precise. Remember when Amita went in for a hip operation, 
they marked which side they were doing the, the op. I'm sure if any of you have ever had ops and things, they kind of mark specifically. You know, Luke gives us that kind of detail. It was his right hand. And we don't know, but quite possibly he was a right-handed individual. And, you know, it was going to be a big impact on his life. But suddenly now he stretches forth his hand, just in obedience. Maybe because he's seen these other miracles take place. Maybe just because of what Jesus had been speaking about. We're told he stretched it out and his hand was restored whole as the other. Could you imagine in their midst, they watched this. I just think a wonderful thing for those that hadn't closed up their minds. And we told them the Pharisees went forth straight away. It's that word that Mark uses frequently. And took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. And we see really, again, the high moral standard now going to come to the floor, of course, tongue-in-cheek, because they, they go to their political opponents and try and get them on side so they can destroy Jesus. They see Jesus as a threat. And really, this just exposes their situation, their, their position, because the, their motivation wasn't godliness. It wasn't even the law. It was power. They were frightened that Jesus was going to come and and draw a huge following after him. And what political impact was that going to have? It's reading from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. Just read this. Nothing is known of the Herodians beyond what the gospel state, whatever their political aims they early perceived that Christ's pure and spiritual teaching on the kingdom of God was irreconcilable with these. And that Christ's influence with the people was antagonistic to their interests. Hence, in Galilee, on the occasion of the healing of the man with the withered hand, they readily joined with the more powerful party of the Pharisees in plots to crush Jesus. And again in Jerusalem in the last week of Christ's life, they renewed this alliance in the attempt to entrap Jesus on the question of the tribute money. The warning of Jesus to his disciples to beware of the leaven of Herod may have had reference to the insidious spirit of this party. So they're just a, a political group in a sense. And of course, just a list there, just so you can see, this is during the time of Herod Antipas. Okay, So they're the Herods that we have uh, recording scriptures through that in just for your own reference if you're curious um, Herod of course was a title uh, and passed down um, through these individuals um, so this again no seem, seemingly religious uh, side or, or spiritual side to, to their position but the Pharisees now try to side with them just trying to muster support against Jesus and so in verse 7 we read but Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea. It's interesting how Jesus diffuses situations so often. He doesn't try and carry on an argument with them or prove any points. He just steps away now with his disciples to see. And we saw, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea. And we were talking potentially thousands of people. I mean, if those of you who saw the royal wedding yesterday, you'd have seen the streets lined with thousands of people watching the wedding carriage and go through the park in Windsor. But imagine those thousands and thousands of people all coming to see Jesus. You know, all these events that have been going on over the last few weeks, no doubt would have spread very quickly. 
We've already seen that evening back at Peter's place and the whole multitude gathered outside the door so they couldn't even get to the door. Of course, when they bring that man on the the stretcher, they, they, they can't get him to the front door. They bring him through the roof. Thousands of people. And we're told him from Jerusalem and from Idumea. It's the area down as far as Edom. And from beyond the Jordan. And they about Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude. People are traveling a great distance now. When they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. These people make this journey. We'll look at the map in a moment. I'll just show you some of these things. But notice that they heard what things were done. You know, and this sadly is so often where people are at. They, they look at Jesus as in a, how will he help me? How will he make my life better, more prosperous? You know, of course, it's, it's a good thing for people to be attracted to Jesus, but if the focus is merely on what he can do for them instead of who he is, then they're missing the point and they won't follow him for that long. You know, we read in John 6 about this time in Capernaum, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Jesus says some things that some of them struggle with. And so kind of, some of that fascination disappears. You know, if people follow after Jesus simply because they're curious and they think they might get something out of it, well, it won't be very long before that curiosity fades and they go back to what they were doing before. But when we come to Jesus because of who he is, We'll never want to leave. That's the question at Caesarea Philippi that is put to Peter when Jesus says, who do you say I am? That is the question for every individual. Who is Jesus to you? Is he just a good person? Or is he the son of God came to die for our sin? The distance from Jerusalem itself up to Capernaum was typically about a three-day journey. Depending on how quickly you, you traveled, it could have been anything up to a five-day journey. But people are traveling from this area, and not just from the, from the south of Jerusalem, but from lower down this, from the area of Eden, which is just off the bottom there, under the yellow bit, under the, where Reuben's uh, allotment uh, was. And then from Tyre and Sidon, above that as well. Huge crowds coming to, to hear Jesus, to see Jesus. But again, curiosity. And he spoke to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. So just so many people now. Now, i just throw this in again. Some of you may be aware of this. There was a boat found uh, in 1986. This was excavated and found. It was made of about 12 different types of local wood. Uh, I'll leave this in the notes for you if you want to have a look at the details. Uh, they've now got a little museum uh, there on the, the, sh- the side of the shores of Galilee uh, with this boat where they try to preserve it. Uh, that's actually the... A picture of the, the boat. So it typically, to give you a better picture, something along the lines of that type of vessel is the kind of boat that they would have gone into. Now, of course, we know that a number of the disciples were fishermen. It may have been one of their own boats, one of the family boats they had um, that they maybe grabbed hold of, or maybe some of the friends of theirs who were fishermen. But whatever, they grab a boat and they get Jesus into the boat to get him off the shore just so that he's not pushed and squashed by the crowds at this point. We're told, for he had healed many insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him as many as had plagues. And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. 
And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. Now, these things sometimes are strange because didn't Jesus want to be known? Didn't he come to be a witness to the Father of, of what he of his ministry? Well, I think first he he doesn't need testimony from these unclean spirits. That's one issue. But secondly, Jesus, as we've seen many times, was waiting until that right moment when he would present himself as the Messiah. We'll get there as we carry on through our study. And then verse 13, And he goeth up into a mountain and called unto him whom he would. And they came unto him. And he ordained twelve, that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach and have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. So there's a multitude and a lot of people following after Jesus and some that would have said they were disciples, but Jesus now specifically picks 12. Remember John 15, 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. You should bear fruit. That, that goes for every believer, but very much for the disciples. Jesus now gives them this power, this exousia in the Greek. It's an ability, a privilege, or a delegated influence. And it does seem to be something specific that is given to the disciples at this point. And it's power to heal all sickness and disease given to these 12 as they go out. Again, they were proclaiming, they were preaching of the coming kingdom. Of course, they weren't preaching the gospel in the sense that we preach the gospel because Christ hadn't yet suffered. Christ hadn't died at this point. They're preaching of the coming king, of the coming judgment. And then we're given the names of these disciples. And he surn- Simon, he surnamed Peter. Again, that name, Rock. And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and he surnamed them. I don't even know how to pronounce this. That one. Which is the sons of thunder. We'll talk more about these individuals as we go through. But Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him and they went into a house. And the, these are the twelve. Again, we've got listed four times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and also in the book of Acts. Of course, in the book of Acts, Judas is no longer with them, having committed suicide by that point. And we find, again, these three groups of 12. The first group always includes Peter, Andrew, James, and John. That second group always seemingly including Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. And the last group, James, Lebius, and uh, Simon, and Judas. Always uh, grouped in pairs as well. So on. I, I just read this to you. Some of you may have heard this before, but I just think this is quite interesting, quite insightful in a sense, the way that we look at things. It's, it's a, imagine a letter being written to Jesus at the start of his ministry. It's to Jesus, the son of Joseph. Jesus' company, of course, was the wood crafters carpenter shop in Nazareth. That's, that's what Jesus was doing, wasn't he? He was in the wood trade. From the Jordan Management Consultants in Jerusalem, the management report. And just simply, this hypothetical letter says, Thank you for submitting the resume of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. 
All of them have now taken our battery of tests and we have not only run the results through our computers but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. It's the opinion of the staff that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you're undertaking. Uh, They do not have the team concept. Uh, We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capacity. We have summarized the findings of our study below. Simon Peter is emotional, unstable, and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no quality of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interests above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. And we believe in our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alpheus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and additionally, they are both registered high scores on the manic depressive scale. However, one of the candidates shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He's a great networker. He's a keen business mind and has strong contacts in influential circles. He's highly motivated, very ambitious, and adept with financial matters. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controlling and chief operating officer. All the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you the utmost success in your new venture. Of course, it's just fictitious, but isn't it interesting the way the world looks at things? What is it that's later said of the disciples? That they were untrained and uneducated, but they had been with Jesus. We'll, We'll leave it there for this morning, but the challenge for us is not to be intimidated. Because if you have been with Jesus, you have everything you need. You have every qualification. The thing here is that Jesus chose and anointed and appointed these people. The world looks at ordination as something that should be done by men or women in long gowns. Isn't it better if we're ordained by Jesus Christ himself? Isn't that a far greater commendation and recommendation and each of us have been chosen not because of our academic qualities or abilities not to say that the lord doesn't use those things as and when he chooses but you know everything that we have every good thing has become is because he's given it to us you know you think back to genesis chapter 4 and cain and abel Oh, Cain worked really hard to give the best that he had. But that was precisely what it was. It was the best that he had. And the best that we have is just filthy rags before God. Abel offered to God that which he'd been given. He offered a sacrifice that was pleasing to God. Yeah, and God isn't looking for us to have all the answers to all the questions. He's not looking for us to be the best and greatest apologists when we go and speak to people. Just simply obedient. I've said many times before, I really think that we should remove the word success from the Christian's vocabulary. Success is a very worldly notion. Success should be replaced with obedience. That's what we're called to, just to obey. Take Jeremiah. Jeremiah wasn't successful. Not as we would tend to think of success. 
Jeremiah was the least successful prophet there was in terms of his real influence on the nation. But you look through scripture and find so many more obedient. Jeremiah, even though he found it so hard, never gave up. Wanted to a couple of times. A great verse. Lord says to him, if you've run with a footman and they've wearied you, how will you contend with the horses? Otherwise, you think this is tough. Yet we think it's hard now sometimes. What happens when real persecution comes in this country? You know, at the moment we can talk to our neighbors and we don't get arrested. What happens if they make that a crime? To talk about Jesus being the only way. You know, we have an, a, an opportunity now. Just as these disciples were given that opportunity at this time to go out to heal the sick, to preach the good news of the kingdom, we've got a great opportunity now to to go out and witness. And Jesus here calls these individuals no real abilities that we would speak of, apart from one which, of course, as we've just seen, was the one that betrayed him. Jesus just wants us. Just a willing heart, just to be obedient on what the Lord can do through a heart that's yielded to Him. We read in Chronicles, the Lord looks to and fro throughout the earth. To paraphrase that, that He may strongly support those whose hearts are committed to Him. And that's what the Lord would do with each of us. Just looking for us to be obedient. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this account that Mark has given us. Thank you that he has such a love for Jesus. Father, thank you that as these things have been recorded, we just get a a snapshot of the intensity of these moments, of these encounters. Lord, the person who walked the shores of Galilee, healing and speaking of the kingdom of God, the one who stood against this religious hypocrisy and would go on to speak of a relationship only made possible through his own death. And Jesus, you chose your disciples and you equipped them, you empowered them. And Lord, we pray the same for us here this morning. Lord, we know that we have the privilege of being called by you. So equip us, Lord, we pray, and give us the boldness, the confidence. Lord, I don't believe in our hearts any of us are ashamed of the gospel, but Father, give us the boldness to share the good news. Lord, as Mark is sharing these things with us, Lord, help us to just overflow with these things and share with other people who Jesus is. Not just what he can do, but who he is. Because that changes lives. Lord, we just thank you for this time this morning. Lord, keep us close to you. Keep us growing. Keep us hungry for the things of you. May we love you more and the things of this world less. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May God richly bless you. Let's spend some time fellowshipping together with some teas and coffees.